HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. This is Meant to be Eaten, the Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Jacqueline Rowell. This episode is part of a series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the journal for food studies. For the past several weeks, we have featured conversations with authors from our fall 2021 issue on global gastropolitics to talk about tastes, ingredients, palates, and power from different times and places. This week, we return for What to Read Now, which is dedicated to highlighting new books in food studies. There are many new titles in food studies and across disciplines related to food, and I will quickly draw attention to three fascinating recent books here before proceeding to introduce my guest today. Von Tan's The Uncertainty Mindset, Innovation Insights from the Frontiers of Food by Columbia University Press 2020. This business-oriented title looks at innovation within high-end restaurant kitchens and how uncertainty leads teams to culinary creativity. A second title, Foodwise, A Whole Systems Guide to Sustainable and Delicious Food Choices by North Atlantic Books, also 2020. This is a practical guide on how to make choices in eating sustainably, written by geography and environmental studies professor Gigi Berardi. Foodwise, which stands for Whole, Informed, Sustainable, and Experience-Based Food Choices, um, is a book that will be of interest to scholars, students in the classroom, and also broader public. And the third title, Tasting Difference, Food, Race, and Cultural Encounters in Early Modern Literature, by Gitanjali Shahani, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. This title examines racial difference through histories and early modern representations of edible substances, such as sugar, coffee, spices, and the ways in which gustatory difference was forged at the point of colonial contact between Europe and Asia. This book will be of interest to anyone who'd like to read more about literary histories of food and race. All three of these books were recently reviewed in Gastronomica. Visit gastronomica.org to learn more about them from our reviews section. Now this week, I'm joined by Melissa Fuster, my colleague on Gastronomica's editorial collective. Melissa is Associate Professor of Public Health Nutrition at Tulane University, and she has recently published her first book, Caravanos at the Table, 
how migration, health, and race intersect in New York City, which we're here to talk about today. It just came out with University of North Carolina Press in October. Thank you for joining, Melissa. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Jackie. Uh, so before we dive into your book, I would love to know what's on your fall winter reading list. What new book have you recently read that you're excited about or that you're looking forward to reading to next in Food Studies? Actually, one of the ones that you just mentioned, the uh, uncertainty mindset, is one that I recently read and really enjoyed. Um, it relates to some of the new work that I'm doing with, with restaurants. Um, and I also have, hopefully, uh, moving forward in the winter, once I have more time, uh, I'm very interested in some of the new titles that are coming up, um, like the one that you just mentioned, Taste Indifference, or one I have in my list is Getting Something to Eat in Jackson that talks about race, class, and food in the South. So those are some that I, I hope to get to read um, soon. <laughs> Terrific. Terrific. Thanks, Melissa. And um, I, I'd like to ask you to tell listeners what you do and where you're currently based. And then maybe before diving into the book, um, if you can tell us a little bit about your current work on restaurants and the restaurant project and and um, how that led you to to kind of read about or to find that that title. Um, so what are you doing on, on restaurants? Yeah, so so yes, I'm I'm just currently based at as you mentioned at Tulane University, but I'm still in New York before joining Tulane. This was this is a new position. Um so I'm in the process of moving and in New York I I am working on this new project that actually comes from from the book. Um that is the Latin American Restaurants in Action. And this project uh is to to sort of try to move nutrition the way we we want to get people to eat healthier um, using restaurants as a, as a way to motivate people to think differently about traditional diets, Latin American diets. So that, that is the work I'm doing. And that, that book that I mentioned, uh, The Uncertainty Mindset, was really useful in learning the ins and outs of how those high-end restaurants think about innovation and then trying to bring that... Um, to, to the Latin American restaurants that I'm working with now. And where can listeners learn more about some of that work um, on your restaurant project? Do you have a yeah, website? Thank you. Yes, uh, we do. <laughs> we, we are active in social media because that was part of the, of the way to reach out to, to restaurants. So they can find us um, via Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter at Laria Project. And we also have the website that's also lariaproject.com. And uh, does the project focus on New York City, uh, on the United States? Um, how, how broad is the scope? Yeah, so in the beginning, this was a project that was imagined in the days before COVID, if we can remember those nowadays. Um, and originally it was based in New York. But then when the pandemic hit, we decided to to move a lot of the work virtual so that allow us to go broader. So we did speak to restaurants outside of New York, like in Puerto Rico, Miami. Um, but the, the places that we are working, collaborating with are, are in New York. And this is very much an applied research project or a community-based research project. 
Um, is that right? Can you tell me a little bit more about how you got to that to that um, place and maybe how um, your work on this book led you there? Yeah, no, it's very applied. Um, and I do say that the, that it is sort of a continuation from the work in Caribeños at the Table. In, and I know we'll speak about it more. Um, but in the book, one of the things I, I'm hoping to do is to push people to think um, beyond the individual. And I say this coming from, again, public health nutrition, that even though my discipline is, is starting to change, um, there is still this focus on individual behavior change, like you are responsible for eating better, eating right, whereas issues on the environment, what is available in the places we live and eat and buy foods are are less thought about. Again, again, this is changing. And also, um, I think that even though the discipline is moving to looking more into food environments, it's still a focus on assuming that we're cooking at home. Um, so we see a lot of work in bodegas, supermarkets, things like that. But with restaurants, what I think is so uh, interesting, um, even though they're, of course, challenging places to to do public health interventions, is that I see that, that restaurants can have the power to change how how we see certain foods, like, for example, um, and it's something I also speak about in the book a little, that when we move to a place like New York, for example, I'm from Puerto Rico, and we encounter new new vegetables, sometimes we might see them in a supermarket or a farmer's market, but they can be honestly a little bit intimidating. And it's very different when you encounter something like that at a, at a restaurant and you try it. And it's like through that trying a Brussels sprout or or asparagus, something like that, that then it's like, oh, that's, this actually tastes better than I thought. And then you try it at home. So it's sort of um, using restaurants to and their influence on taste, flavor, deliciousness, to then hopefully make healthier choices, not only the easy choices, but what people actually want to eat. And uh, when you work with the restaurants, you work with the restaurateurs, the chefs, um, other staff, customers. Um, is it is it focusing on the producer, on the consumer, um, both? We So the way we approach this is also uh, a little bit different than, than what people have done in the past. We are using this approach, um, design thinking, and or human-centered design is also called. And the way the way this works is that we we it's very uh, I don't want to say so much participatory, but more collaborative. In that we did a lot of, for example, market research for the restaurants, and then show them the data. Um, and then working with them, we got into a, a common understanding first of how we see the the problem. Um, the problem related, of course, to healthy eating on my end, but then on their end is the, the business aspect. So it was this uh, negotiation of, of what's the problem, what can we do, and then working with them to, to say, okay, what are you willing to change? And then we help them change. Meaning this that, is- for example, providing um, technical assistance, uh, design assistance, uh, culinary nutrition expertise, whatever they they needed. This is really inspiring and uh, as somebody who does community engaged research. Um, so I'm looking forward to learning more about this project. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I, so I'm hearing different 
um, disciplines that are, are really threading together in your work. And so you, you specialize in public health nutrition, um, working with business, um, design thinking, and of course you have um, a background in food studies. And those come through um, really, really clearly the, the way those disciplines weave together in, in the narrative of the book for, um, for those who are interested in, in reading more. So can you tell us or me about how did you get to this point in, in <laughs> what's your multidisciplinary research and training background? And I've heard you refer to this as your academic upbringing. And I love that term. <laughs> uh, so, so tell me a little bit more. Yeah, so it is, I, it can be a longer story, so I'll try, I'll try to make it short. Um, but, uh, so I, I did start my my upbringing <laughs> started in biology. I, I always like science and biology is was really interesting. But then uh, as I kept going through my biology training, I realized I was taking a lot of electives in social sciences. And in those, I started learning more about food and how people relate to food. So <laughs> I ended up switching from being a biology major to sociology and anthropology. But then before doing my master's, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I worked in, uh, in research, program evaluation. And in that, I, I, my interest in food became more, more present. But I didn't want it to be a, a registered dietitian. Like I really didn't want to tell people what to eat or, or things like that. And I discovered this, this interdisciplinary program at Tufts University in food policy and applied nutrition that was just perfect. And in that, I added to my multidisciplinary bag uh, things around economics, um, intervention design, all of that. And, and then when I finished, I did my, my dissertation in El Salvador, looking at how food insecure communities understand and define healthy eating. And even though I was there to talk to people about present day food access, uh, hunger, all of that, it, it really struck me that in those conversations I was having with people in the 2000s, people still were referring back to issues around the civil war of the 1980s or things around violence, immigration. So, so I realized there's many things here happening that are affecting people's eating behaviors that I didn't have the tools to really tackle through through my training. And when I say that, I mean things around history, all of those things that, of course, in nutrition, you know, there's so much, so many uh, disciplines that you can fit in. And that then took me to, to thankfully do, a, I had the opportunity to do a postdoctoral fellowship in food studies at NYU. And this is where I met a lot of people from from different disciplines, including, of course, many of the people in in the Gastronomica Collective. And that was super interesting to see how people from history, literature, geography, so many, again, so many disciplines approach food and that deepen and um, added complexity to to my own understanding of, of food. And now, like, actually, when you just mentioned, yes, it's true. Now I added business (laughs) into this, uh, because I feel food is so complicated. You you have to do it through all of these different lenses. I absolutely absolutely agree with you. And and this is um, how you got to Caravanos at the table. Um, your new book, how migration, health, and race intersect in New York City. That's that's really the product of 
of, um, of those uh, different pathways that you took um, following your work in food studies. Is that right? Yes, yes, definitely. Yes. So can you describe the cover image um, for us? And, and how did you choose it? What does it say about the book? Yeah, so I really, I really like the cover. And I will say that I didn't choose it, or of course, or design it myself. Um, when I was working with the press on the book cover, oh, I, I'm sorry, I should describe it first. Um, the book cover has a, a background image of, of New York City, of a, of a bridge. And then you see uh, plantains in a, in a pilon. That, that pilon is a Moro pestle. It's a very traditional cooking um, art, artifact that, that we use in the, in the Caribbean. And you have plantains in there. And, and the way the book cover came out, when I was talking with the press about the cover, I, I didn't want people in it um, because I feel that one of the beauty of, of, of the Caribbean and Hispanic Caribbeans is that we are so mixed that it's really, it will be really hard to really have one image of a person there. And then I focused like, okay, let's just have a, a food that's common across Puerto Rico Dominican Republic and Cuba, the, the focus of the book. And of course, plantain was, was the easiest and, and I think more most beautiful or, or eye-catching um, food that, I, that that could be. And, and yeah, so I basically send them a few images of plantains uh, in different ways and then they came up with that beautiful cover. They were, they were amazing in the design. It is a it's a beautiful cover, and the book is about eating and health and well being in the context of regional migration um, to to uh, New York City, um, and it focuses on the food experiences of newcomers to the United States and the way in which these experiences are shaped by structural factors such as economic, gender, and racial inequities that impact access to food and to healthcare. So, how did you who did you write this book for? How did you come to write it? Yeah, so I think I, I have different, I had different people in mind, um, but I think the book came about, honestly, from a, a bit of a frustration with my own discipline and how us uh, in public health and nutrition, we speak about the diets of, of the other. And in this case, again, being Puerto Rican, it was also very personal how, how I saw my community being portrayed in, in research and in conferences. And, and it, it frustrated me that it was a lot of, okay, like it, it's their culture, it's how they eat. Um, and the way they deal with culture was, we cannot change culture, culture is static. They come in with this assumed attachment to rice, beans, and plantains. Um, and, and it was again, really interesting and frustrating to see how we felt into stereotypes of, of different foods and a lack of nuanced way of even trying to understand how how it is that certain foods end up in our tradi- so-called traditional food ways. Um, and also understanding, okay, when we move, it's not just diet, the so-called dietary acculturation. It's not that we just suddenly discover pizza and hot dog. We're eating those things back home. So it was a very oversimplistic way of addressing dietary change. So again, it was this frustration and trying to hopefully um, change how how my field addresses uh, immigrants um, and trying to be more nuanced with with 
Hispanic Caribbeans and Latinos, and not only, of course, all the other beautiful communities that, that we have here in the United States. But then at the same time, um, as I said, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico, so there's also this personal aspect of the book that I really also wanted to understand the history of my community in the United States. And I could have maybe more <laughs> easy uh, written a book on just Puerto Ricans in New York, um, but I felt that that would miss the the, the relationships that we have back in the Caribbean, um, Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and Cuba, we see each other as sister islands, and there's a lot of communication and things in common that, interestingly, when you are here in the diaspora, those connections are severed or, or forgotten. So I, I took that deep dive, again, to understand my community and then brought in my fellow Caribeños to make that understanding a, a little bit deeper and also not to fall into what I feel sometimes um, volumes that only address one food way or one culture tend to overemphasize on on uniqueness that maybe are things that we shared and that the sharing of, of food ways or cultural traits or, or how we do things is also interesting. So I wanted just to have that nuance there too. And, and so your own personal story really comes through within the, the writing of the book, within the pages of the book. So one more question for you before we go to break. Um, how did you do, how did you navigate the research for this, for this book? Um, what was your method and how did you bring in your own story into that research approach? Yeah, so definitely it was, uh, it was a, a little bit, of course, autobiographical, uh, autobiography in, in, or ethnography in that after all I, I am a Caribeña in New York City so there was a lot of that on my own experience but formally um, the book intertwines interviews with fellow Caribeños so people in the community Dominican Cubans and Puerto Ricans that were either born in the Caribbean or or in the US so it's you also have that mix of, of people and then I also brought in interviews with registered dietitians that work with the community and those, that ethnographic data, I, in, I also joined together with archival research, um, looking at old city guys, how the media portrayed the communities, how they spoke about our food, whatever little I was able to find, restaurant menus, cookbooks, um, and also public health research. So it was that a, a lot of things uh, coming together, a lot of, of intertwining in that work. And I want to ask you about one particular story, which you call feeding an iguana when we come back from the break. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. 
Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten and Gastronomica's What to Read Now special feature. I'm Jacqueline Orwell talking with Melissa Fuster about her new book, Caravenos at the Table, How Migration, Health, and Race Intersect in New York City. So feeding an iguana, this is one of um, my favorite stories that, that came out of this book. And it's really, it, it came from your field research. Um, can you tell me what, and tell listeners, why is it so important to the core of the book? And what did you take away from this exchange? What is the story? Yeah, no, it is, it is definitely my favorite story too, uh, of the book. Uh, so th- th- this came about, I was asking uh, a uh, one of my Puerto Rican um, people that I was speaking for for the book about I forget exactly what we're talking about, but about dietary changes or what she usually oh it was what she usually ate, um, and she was saying like oh yeah like we eat salads every day and we got to talk about salads, and usually a, a joke that we had in the interviews is that the Puerto Rican salad or or really the the Caribbean Caribeño salad is basically uh, iceberg lettuce, uh, tomato, and maybe onions some people might put in. So it's like very, it doesn't have a lot of nutrients if we speak about the nutrition of it. But when she described her salad, she was talking about arugula, a lot of different greens. And she even said like, yeah, because iceberg lettuce is just water. And that really like caught my attention because I've never had a person really speak about that in that way. And immediately in my head, it was like, oh, she learned about this from a dietitian, or somebody had to tell her about this. Um, and then when I asked her, oh, how, how did you learn about this? And she told me, well, I had a, a neighbor that, that had an iguana <laughs> and that somehow they ended up with the iguana at the house, a, a big one. And she had to, to research what to fit the, the, the iguana. And that's how she learned that that the iceberg lettuce that, that she would have fed the iguana didn't have anything. Like it was just, again, water. And she started buying the, the arugula and all these other greens for the iguana and realized the animal is eating better than, than I am. So then she started eating uh, that herself and adding fruits and nuts and, and other things. And when I was writing that up and thinking about that, it really hit me that the same stereotype view that I sometimes I criticize in the book that people in my field had, I also had it myself, that I also, I was assuming coming into the interviews that people maybe didn't eat salads or or that they didn't eat the, this, these other types of more nutrient-dense salads. And, it, and what I mentioned in the opening of that chapter is that how, how could I think like that when I grew up in Puerto Rico eating uh, the, the beautiful salads with nuts and fruits and everything. And I enjoy plenty of salads back, back home in Puerto Rico. So it was again of that, one of those moments that you have doing field work that, that you realize, oh, okay, I'm, like, I'm thinking this way too and, and I need to change the, the stereotypes that I'm trying to, to push against in this work. So one of the ways you connect comida, the meals, the sensory and historical materialities of dishes and diet-related health outcomes is through the analytic of Nutraspeak, what you call Nutraspeak. So you connect cuisine and meals, their materiality and their flavors and their ingredients, their daily rhythms, migration histories, colonial histories to broader social structures. 
Can you say a little bit more about the phenomena of Nutraspeak? Was this the point that you started paying uh, more attention to that uh, that analytic, that uh, that phenomena in your research? Yeah, um, and for the listeners that don't know, um, I didn't, of course, coin the term Nutraspeak. Uh, I I used to work from Georgie screenings on nutritionism, um, and. And this is just a way that that people, when you speak about food, they use terms from nutrition science. Like, for example, instead of saying rice or plantains, they would say carbs, or talk about proteins or fats. And and that was something that really really struck me. Just having conversations with people, because the way I did the conversations. I wanted to, and I told people, I just want to talk with you about your traditional foods. Like I, I phrased them more in enjoyment and culture versus uh, opening up like, hey, how healthy is your diet? I did ask that, but later on in the interview. But even before I did, people were already assigning nutritional values to the food and being very critical. Like, oh yeah, it's too much carbs. Um, not enough uh, salads, things like that. So that that was again that that Nutrispeak served as a way to to sort of name what what I was seeing in the normal conversations that I was having with with people about their foods. Fascinating, and and that was surprising, yes, that it came up so early in the conversation. Yes, it was, but then at the same time. Um, I feel that, that that way of speaking about food is, is general. Like I feel people in general now are, are talking about, oh, I need to eat more protein or I cannot eat that many carbs. Like I think people have unfortunately reduced the food in, in the colloquial way of speaking a lot of time to, to those ma- macronutrients sometimes. And you were talking to people about about what they eat, um, but you also cooked with with some of your informants as part of your field work. Is that right? You learned for the first time. Um, you describe in the book first time making pasteles. Yes. Can you tell me more about this dish? It's a seasonal festive dish. So, what? How does one make it? Yes. So uh, the pasteles um, are our savory dish, and I say this because. The word pastel in most other places in, in Latin America is used for cake. So when I say pasteles, people sometimes think, oh, it's like it's a cake, it's a sweet. But it's a, it's actually a savory dish. And and it's, you know, how, how I feel most or all food cultures have a type of dumpling or something like that. So it is, I feel, that for, for us. Uh, the simpler way to describe it is is like a tamal, but made instead of cornmeal, uh, made with a masa um, that is uh, root crops like green bananas, um, yautia, like a lot of, it, it's like a brownish, and we color it with uh, a chiote, anato, anato oil. And then it, it is like a, it is a rectangle and you fill it with usually pork, um, there is a lot of debate about olives, uh, raisins, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get there because that's like another, <laughs> another longer podcast. Um, <laughs> but then you, you wrap it into a plantain leaf 
And the, the beautiful thing about it is that you, you tie it like a, like a gift. So it ends with a little bowl and, bowl and then you boil it for about 45 minutes. But it takes a lot of time to make the masa because you have to um, it really cook the, the, the root crops um, and, and shred the everything. So it's a lot of, of handy work. There are some machines now that people use, but most people do it by hand if you do it at home. And, and again, it's a lot of ingredients. It's a lot of production. So growing up in Puerto Rico, I grew up in, in San Juan, the capital, so very urban. And I never, I've never made pasteles. My family never made them. We usually outsource all, all that labor and bought them for mostly Christmas. So when I, when I was interviewing one of my, my Puerto Rican informants, and she's, she actually made them in, in the Lower East Side as a, as a home business, I mentioned to her, oh, I've never made pasteles. And she was like super surprised. And she was like, oh, no, no, you need to learn. And then she, I was so thankful that she invited me to her home because she was making it for, for a celebration or something that she was going to sell them. So I, I spent the entire day with her and her mom <laughs> making the, the pasteles. And, and not, I mean, I mentioned, of course, that it's very labor intensive, but the wrapping of it was also super challenging because if you wrap them wrong, the, the masa goes on the side and then it's a, it's a mess aesthetically and the flavor also changes. So I, I don't know how helpful I was um, throughout <laughs> the steps, but I, I was super thankful. And, and even more than that, she gave me half a dozen to take home. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very nice. So, so that actually, um, I have another question, um, but before I get there, um, it is so it's part, just to clarify, it's part of a community celebration, but it could also be part of a home based business, it sounds like. So, this is a particular interest of mine, Cooks as Micro Entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you found. So, you write about in the book the network of small entrepreneurs from whom your family sourced pastelas growing up in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And then during your field work, um, your, your interviewee sells her homemade pastelas to friends and neighbors. Um, as a way to make money, would you say? But you also say it's connected to culture. So I guess my question is, are the pastelis, is it a transaction or a gift? Or or maybe neither or both? I feel it's both. Mm-hmm. Because when you make them, um, like a person like her, um, she she's just particularly also because she, she also saw it, the way she talked about making the pastel was a cultural project that she wanted to to still keep that that flavor and that food alive. Um, she's located in the Lower East Side of New York City that for people that don't know, the Lower East Side historically has been a, a very strong Puerto Rican community, but of course it's also very popular, super gentrified at this point. So even though you still see uh, Puerto Rican uh, institutions there, like the New York Rican Poets Cafe, cultural centers, it's it's not as present as before. So she she would do the pasteles as a way to keep the culture going um, and she would sell them as festivals. So that was that economic transaction because yes, of course she made it as a, as a side, most likely cash business. Um, um, but then also there was a cultural aspect of it. And mm-hmm. it was, I, I'm, I'm sure that of course she gifted that to friends and family 
but I feel most it was more mostly for selling also. And so will you be having pastas this holiday season or making them, buying them? Do you have any plans going into I, December? I'm not sure if I'll, if I'll make pasteles anytime <laughs> soon. You need a bigger <laughs> kitchen than I have. Um, but yeah, I actually have some in my, fris- in my freezer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be um, definitely eating them um, as much as I can, yeah. <laughs> So we are um, winding up towards the the end of the episode, our time together, and I have one final question for you, um, which is, what impact do you hope this work will have, uh, um, your book, on beyond conversations um, among scholars? So what concrete changes do you want to see happen? Um, whether it be for health equity, professionalization, food access. We started by talking about um, your new project on um, the restaurants. Um, Are there any policy changes that you'd like to see come out of uh, the research you did for this book? Hmm. Yeah, I I see uh, a couple of things. Um, I I mentioned before, for example, that, that, that wish for us to shift our thinking from that individual focus, behavior change, individual blaming on on health inequities, uh, diet-related inequities in our community. So thinking more about, okay, if people are not eating the way we want them to eat, is it about access? Is it about food availability? So thinking more about that and also not, not just thinking about food provision. It's not like we're giving people the food, but how, how we can make access, again, um, thinking about better jobs, education, all of those things need to be part of conversations of food equity and, and health equity. So I do hope this understanding sort of brings about the importance of, of structure, thinking about class, uh, also race is, is in there, um, gender, all of those things, and also the policies and the, the historical views of of the community and that how that then influences still how we are viewed here today so we need to to really tackle that when we're trying to help the help the community or or also uh, making interventions or public health um, work so that that is one part of that Um, and i mentioned also that my work with the with the laria project comes from from that so i hope that this also inspire people to to think more outside of the box of, of when we're trying to to promote healthier eating, not just do more nutrition education, but think about creative ways of of using the our history, our traditions in a in a more nuanced way to promote again that that healthier eating. And also another thing with the with the restaurant project, it's um, thinking about the livelihood. So again, I mentioned that the the restaurant piece is to to think perceptions of traditional healthy food, um, but there is also the livelihood aspect that food uh, is also a, a very important entryway for immigrants into the local economy. So we can think about food businesses, collaborating with them, taking um, taking care to, to, to take care of their needs in terms of just accepting that these are small businesses, they need the revenue. So how we can negotiate so they can survive 
and by surviving they employ hopefully uh, local people in the community and a lot of these people tend to be local residents of, of the places that they have the business. So you're also helping in, in that sense as well. Terrific. So the Latin American Restaurants in Action Project and listeners can learn more at ladiaproject.com. We will link it um, from the show notes. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining today. Listeners can find Caravanos at the Table, How Migration, Health, and Race Intersect in New York City through the University of North Carolina Press, published this year, 2021. For more on Gastronomica and to preview our most recent issue, visit gastronomica.org.